Welcome to Holteras Presents, a brand agnostic interview podcast that seeks to objectively highlight the happenings within the world of diagnostics. And now, your hosts, Rich Thayer and Mickey Yade. Hello, this is Rich Thayer, managing partner at Halteras Associates. And this is Mickey Yurde, founding partner. Welcome to this episode of Halteras Presents. Today we're going to hear from Dr. Patty Garcia, who lives in Lima, Peru, on her perspectives on the importance of considering the entire diagnostics ecosystem before bringing new diagnostics to market or even before embarking on developing new programs and her experiences with those. She's had a remarkable experience over the last 30 years, and we can't wait to share this with you. And now let's welcome Dr. Patty Garcia. Hello, Patty. And welcome to this episode of Health Terrace Presents. Before we get started, could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Hello, everybody. Well, my name is Patty Garcia. I train as a physician in um, Lima, Peru. I had the opportunity of training at the University of Washington on infectious diseases. And then I saw the light and started working in public health and global health and came back to my country because I always wanted to work here in Peru. Now I'm a professor at the School of Public Health at Cayetano Heredia University in Lima, Peru, which is a leading university in health sciences in my country. During my life, I have had the opportunity of jumping back and forth from academia into Ministry of Health positions. So um, in the 90s, I was um, the head of comprehensive care of HIV and STI from the um, just started national HIV and STI program in Peru. Later on, I went back to academia. I, I was invited to be the head of the National Institute of Health of Peru and um, back to academia again. And in 2016 and 17, I had the opportunity of being Minister of Health of Peru. Now, back in academia, working in research, having learned um, even more about how difficult it is to work in a country with a fragmented health system and other limitations, as happens in several countries in the world and in my region, which is Latin America. I'm working in research related to health systems, quality of services, diagnostics, availability, uh, but I keep working also on sexually transmitted diseases, which is the area that I started a long time ago. Excellent. All right. So, Patty, we, we hear a lot about the importance of social media and community engagement as factors for inclusion in any global health or wellness program. For example, how societal constructs and economic disparities play a role in access to health care. So commonly cited issues that I'm sure we all have heard can include type of education, awareness of treatment and testing options, local community, medical and cultural traditions, religious beliefs, stigma, privacy concerns, all associated with various health conditions. We know you've had a lot of interest and have worked in this area for quite a while. And what can you share with us about these issues and how you've approached them over time? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, there are issues that relate to the communities itself. There are issues that relate to the health systems, but there are issues to relate with the production of those um, supplies and, and things that we need in health that several times are not tailored to the needs of the communities or the countries, okay? So um, one of the things that 
I, I think we haven't paid much attention is to understand what the communities need. So um, we have been working, and, and I have worked on, on public health for 30 years, and actually trying to introduce innovations that can help us to reach the most vulnerable and to promote equities also, right? But in order to do that, you have to understand what people think and what people need. And um, so we have done some studies and it's so interesting that, and that irrespective of the culture, okay? And right now, and, and this is quite interesting, in communities, and we work with communities in the Andean region of Peru, in the jungle region, or more urban communities in the coastal area. Peru has three different regions. And all of them, okay, all of the communities, they are aware of the modern world, right? And they believe in innovation and in technologies. So they, people believe in technologies and they want to be part of the modern world in a way through the access of better better health services, better diagnostics, for example. And the other thing that is important is that people more and more would like to take a, the lead on their own health. But several times the way things are designed are just for people to go to health services or to, in a way, depend on, on the services and we are not democratizing health. So community engagement is critical, but in order to really respect the communities, we need to understand what they want and they want to be part of the decision. They want to be part of, of the development that is happening around. And social media is also helping to democratize and, and, and people know knowledge, basically. And so I think they, both things are critical. It's important. And I, what I have learned is that um, they play a critical role if we want to do better um, regarding public health. Yeah. Um, Patty, do you have a few examples you can share with us where you see that occurring? Perhaps especially in social media. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of yeah. course. I mean, regarding you mean regarding um, media or regarding community engagement? Both community engagement, um, and you've done some tremendous work there, and also the use of social media and social media tools. Yeah, okay, so let me give you a couple of them then. Okay, so regarding community engagement, cervical cancer, for example, cervical cancer is a still a very important issue in low-middle-income countries, like Peru, okay? Although pap smears are supposed to be free offered in any health center, we know that women are always afraid, okay, of going to the services because of the type of exposure. You know, having a pap smear means to go to the health center and um, the doctor will use this speculum that is like a, like they call it the duck, right? In order to take the sample, it's painful, is um, stigmatized, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there are problems with the pap smears also that sometimes they are they are not good, they are not accurate, or they don't get processed. So um, in Peru, cervical cancer is still a big problem because one it is estimated at least one woman dies every eight hours because of cervical cancer, and for each two women that are diagnosed 
one dies, which means that they're coming very late. So we decided to understand, okay, what was the problem, first of all, working with community women, and then to try to see what we could do. And that's another situation in which we learn about all the fears that women has going to the health centers. And they were asking also, aren't there any more options other than the pap smear, I mean, other technologies that can help? And actually they are, and molecular testing with self-sampling is an alternative. So we started working on the introduction, first on piloting, because most of the physicians didn't believe that women will be good to do their self-sampling, first of all, and they will not accept it, and they were completely wrong, okay? Women like it. So we started to work with community women in a project that was funded through the Grand Challenges Canada that was called HOPE, okay? Women helping other women to promote cervical cancer screening, okay? So the women that were helping us were women from the community that we found in markets, in schools, because usually uh, women are presidents of the school classes, so they help the teachers to organize the classes and other things. So usually they are involved in the education of their kids. And we found them also in in laundries, as I said, markets, health centers, in different places. And all these women, volunteers, we trained them on what cervical cancer was. They were the first ones to do the self-sampling and they helped us reaching other women from the community with the right message about self-sampling. And actually, For a project that was going to be just a pilot of about 200 women, because it was very little money, we end up having more than almost 3,000 women tested, very well acceptance, and we learn about the power of the community, women talking with other women, okay? That study has grown and, and it evolved when I became Minister of Health. Based on this data, I was able to introduce HPV self-sampling as a policy. And now we are working even in other places like in the Andean region. So community engagement can help to change what is going on, okay, and and to improve the implementation of public health measures, really, because, for example, in the case of women, women are so powerful to talk with other women. So that's one example of community engagement, which is very critical. When we talk about social media, let me tell you that I had this experience that I never planned to really do. I mean, there are things that happened, right? But I I saw that there was, I mean, during the pandemic, as we know, there were so many myths and so much bad information that was going around that... um, At some point, I was not only using Twitter and other social media to answer and and to try to break all this bad information that was around, but I was invited to have a a program in a local TV channel, okay? I never never planned, as I said, to be there. But it was so interesting how many questions, how many things about health, beliefs, and, and, and... problems are there in the community that um, usually people don't feel uh, comfortable to ask at the at a health center or to a doctor, but they will ask. And so they need some some type of media where they could, could ask questions and get the right answers. So we had this TV program that was going every day from 3 to 4.30 during the pandemic. 
in which people were calling or were sending their questions through Twitter or Facebook, and I was answered live. And I was putting together several questions that were kind of like the same kind of things, trying to break meets about different things. Initially, it was about COVID only, but then remember that during COVID, I don't know how it was in the U.S., but in Peru, for example, all the primary health centers were closed. The only thing that was open were hospitals and were just for emergencies and for COVID. So people wanted to know, I mean, if, I mean, what would I do if, if I'm a patient that is diabetic and has this or that? And so we were answering this type of questions. So this direct TV program plus Facebook, Twitter, and answering their questions. And it was not only me. Sometimes I was inviting some specialists to help me for the answers. And, to, and, and I was working also with a journalist that was able to translate uh, what I was saying that sometimes was not necessarily as clear as it was supposed to be. It was very popular. We stayed in, in air like for a, almost a year. Okay. And um, I think it was a great experience for me. I learned so much. And I still find people that um, ask me questions in, in when I'm walking in the streets, etc. There is a lot of need of improving communication about health issues, public health and others. And I think social media can help with us if we have the right people to answer those questions. Right. Are any of those, uh, all those changes which occurred because of COVID, how many of those do you think will continue even as the pandemic wanes and become new typical practices? Well, there are things that we, I think, are here to stay, okay? I was talking about this issue of the self-sampling for HPV, right? Because we started this in 2015, it was really, really hard to push it, okay? Um, I was able to create the guidelines in 2017, but still, for example, physicians were kind of, although there were national guidelines, they were against against the implementation because we have these, these issues of, power between physicians and population, right? Um, but one thing that the pandemic brought, which I think it's great, is um, the understanding that there is a need to involve the community in their own health. And so, for example, in Peru, we also had the introduction of the COVID self-testing. And so now in the minds of people in general, Self-testing is something real, and the self-sampling for HPV became more acceptable even. So now the implementation at the national level is going slow, but it's already ongoing. So I think the importance of diagnostics and the empowerment of people or democratizing diagnostics are two things that came together with the pandemic and are here to stay. The same thing, the issue of the need of innovative diagnostics like molecular diagnostics. I think everybody knows about molecular diagnostics now. And I think it's going to be very hard to go back on that. I think that is going to keep moving along. The I wish issues like more communication about public health in the media could remain there but at least in Peru and in several Latin American countries, I don't know how it is in other parts of the world, we're going through a very unstable political situation. So there are so many things that are um, fighting between each other for priority in the media, okay? But at least I think 
another thing that is here to stay is people is understanding better the concept of public health, the importance of community engagement and involvement too. And those are things that at least from the academic part and as a researcher, and, and it's not only me, but several of us, we're trying to keep in, in the agenda of the public and of the Ministry of Health too. Yeah. You know, interestingly, we saw a small company who was doing this uh, self-collection of samples for HPV testing. And uh, it went very well, as far as we know. It, it, uh, it's a really amazing situation that uh, that's becoming acceptable after all this time. Yeah. So one thing we, we recall is all the work you did in, in syphilis and some of the programs you put in place, which we were just fascinated with. And it's just a, a great story. Would, would you please tell us a bit about that? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I have been working on sexually transmitted diseases from the very beginning of my career. I trained at the University of Washington with Dr. King Holmes. So syphilis <laughs> was one of the diseases that was close to my heart. Okay, so close enough to uh, have me very worried about what to do with it, but not to get infected. Okay, just in case. So anyway, one of the problems uh, in several uh, countries was syphilis and congenital syphilis. And actually, um, although there was a rapid test for syphilis that was already part of the pre-qualification tests that WHO had for countries at a very low price, None of the countries were using it, okay? So actually, there was the opportunity working with uh, Rosanna Pilin at the Imperial College and with some colleagues from Africa and China to think about a collaborative study, several countries, so from different regions, to try to see how could we, what was going on with congenital syphilis and, and if it was possible to implement the use of these rapid syphilis tests. In the case of Peru, it was we decided to start also understanding the different stakeholders, okay, related to um, syphilis testing. And, and, and when I mean the stakeholders was not only the physicians, the authorities, but also the laboratory people. And of course, the women, okay, because we started uh, working with maternal syphilis. And it was so interesting that first of all, we learned that um, nobody knew about syphilis, that syphilis was a problem, although it was 20 times more frequent than HIV in Peru at the time. And uh, we have prevalences of syphilis, even of 9% in services that were seeing women with miscarriages, 9%. And in general population was of pregnant women was 1%, compared with um, HIV, which in Peru in, in pregnant women is 0. Uh, 0.05%. So it's really, really low. So the first of all, nobody knew about syphilis. Women were very worried about HIV, but they didn't know about syphilis anyway. And when we talk about syphilis with these women, it was so interesting. They were the ones that brought the name to our study because when we were telling them this is something that is going on without you knowing, so your baby's growing in your belly, but he could be, you could be infected, you could be transmitting the infection. And when he or she is born, um, it could be very sick. But if we diagnose it on time and give the treatment, 
the baby could be fine. So they said like, oh, it's like the history of the ugly duckling, right? So it could be the ugly duckling, but if they receive the treatment, then the baby will be born fine and will become a swan. So actually they gave the whole study the name of cisne, cisne swan in Spanish. And actually that's how we call it because of the women and everybody love the name cisne. They still talk about the cisne study, right? Because it was turning the ugly duckling with the diagnosis and one dose of penicillin into a beautiful, healthy baby. So anyway, it was quite important to understand the women. They gave the name. And it was quite important also to understand what physicians thought about tests, okay? When we were bringing the idea of a rapid test, they said that's bad because anything that is rapid is bad, Okay, because there was this experience with the rapid HIV tests that at the very beginning in the introduction in our countries, um, I think the concept of being in a screening test was not very well explained. So whenever there was a positive HIV test, they were telling people that there were HIV. And then when the confirmatory test was negative, then physicians were having problems. So we learned that we couldn't use the word rapid test because it was bad for physicians. So we asked them, we told them the characteristics of the test and said, like, I want, why don't you call them the test a, a confirmatory test instead of calling it a rapid syphilis test? And that's what we did. And that changed everything. So knowing what are the myths, what people fear, what people like, okay, and trying to, to catch their interest and showing them what is the real problem and how a new diagnostic can help that problem, all those things were critical for us. And actually, we use the test as this new test as a catalyst for changes in the whole system. So we learned uh, that the system was not working, that women were lost in, in the follow-up, tests were lost. It was a, a big fight with laboratories, but they didn't want to lose the power of doing tests. So we decided to create a role for the laboratories. They were not the ones that were going to do this test because this test was too easy. It was going to be done by the professional midwives at the point of care, but the laboratories will have a much important role, which was the monitoring and the supervision. Giving them a role was quite important. So understanding again their fears, their needs, everything was important. And we were able to create a model for implementation at the primary health level, but also with a system of supervision, quality control, creating roles for every single one, even the person, the guard at the door of the health center. In each health center, we have a guard, okay? Uh, it's called the watchman, okay? And that comes because of the history of terrorism in, in the country. So there is always somebody watching the doors of the of the health centers, right? So even that person, we had to talk with them and explain them what syphilis was, what was their role. And the role was to guide the women to the right door where the women was going to be screened, etc. So everybody had their role in the system and the test became a catalytic tool for the changes. So we went from almost, and this was quite interesting because we even um, in, did some some studies of what did the women had to do from the very beginning when they went to the health center until they could be treated. 
And what we learned is that it could pass almost three months uh, from the time that we went the first time. And at the end, maybe there was no penicillin to give them the treatment or they get lost. So we went from that, okay, to having the women seen, tested, and treated in the same day. It was so easy that we involved community workers and in areas like um, in the jungle, community workers are the ones that are doing this testing. And they are reporting it, although we don't have readers, because readers are, it would be ideal to have readers, but actually the test has been linked to a cell phone and the only thing that they do is they take a picture and they, they put the result. And actually that became a policy in the country in a matter of a year and a half. And now if you go to any part of the country, you will see that people are used the syphilis tests. The other thing that we were able to do is understanding the whole process of procurement. We help the Ministry of Health to procure the test through a strategic fund that UNICEF has. So this test end up being um, bought in Peru and actually we buy it at a dollar and a half, which is much cheaper than any RPR, for example. Okay, so we showed that it was not only easy to use, very effective, catalytic for changes, very well accepted. Women and the midwife love to see the test, the result of the test together. If it is positive, if it is negative, it's like a celebration. But if it is positive, it's also a celebration because there is something that they can do. Um, involve the pharmacy. The pharmacy didn't want the midwives to have the penicillin to give, but then we work with them to have a system so they allowed the midwives to to put the penicillin on the patient right there and report later on to the pharmacy so we are not missing women so it was it has been really a success and that learning allowed us years later to to test also the double syphilis and hiv test we tested um, everybody loved at that point this type of tests, and it was introduced in the country. So now we have also the double HIV and syphilis test, which is bought also through the strategic and a strategic fund, sometimes through PAHOS and terms of through UNICEF, and and it's almost about one dollar and seventy, and um, so we are saving. We have improved coverage, and um, so I think that's a great example on how a test that is simple, used in the right way, so as a, as a way of catalyzing changes, can really change the history of a problem in a country. And actually, we um, also help other Latin American countries to do that. And we will love to do the same with the US or Canada, because I know in Canada, for example, they are having a lot of trouble. I recently heard that they probably are accepting or, or um, are going to start using some rapid tests, which is the way to go. We are working with, with a, a indigenous communities with the test, and they love it because they are able to see something, you know. They see that if there is a, a line, those two lines, that is positive, and there is something that they can do for the treatment. Yeah. It, you know, what you just described is so enlightened because so often we, we see people think of this as, we have to deliver the test to the people and then everything will be fine. Instead of understanding the full ecosystem and all the stakeholders involved and the fact that if you don't deal with all of them, it's not going to work. 
And so yeah. what you described and, But there's well, another additional thing that I, I think it's important, okay? Sometimes the tests are developed, okay, without thinking about the environment where they are going to be needed. So yes. I think this is a matter of understanding where do we need the test, who is going to be using it, okay, in which situations, and I mean, we have to adapt that. And then the implementation phase, which is something yeah. that at some point nobody was taking any attention to, it's critical in order to have the real uptake and in order to have a, a diagnostic test, um, uh, to have a diagnostic test that is really helpful. Right. Thank you, Patty. You know, Project SWAN brings so much hope for the role of diagnostics and the need for awareness. But maybe we could talk a bit further about that point you just raised, you know, how the diagnostic products are designed and understanding more about how they're going to be used. Could you talk a bit more about the issues and the sorts of inputs that developers should be seeking before designing new diagnostic products? Yes, absolutely. And and actually, we had a great experience also years ago bringing developers to Peru, okay? So there were developers of different types of diagnostics from all around the world. And, and actually, this is an idea that I brought to um, the people from the Gates Foundation. I said, like, I mean, there are so many things that they are thinking about, but they are not thinking about where the tests are going to be used. So um, we had this invitation to... I think there were like 30 different developers and we brought them to the coast of Peru. So I used Peru as, as my laboratory so people could see the different types of environment, right? So you have a coast that is a desert where somebody shouldn't have water and it's real. I mean, except for Lima, that is the city, the rest of the country may have limitations. Or you go to the Andean region and I realized that sometimes because of the altitude, there are certain things that don't work because of the altitude or the different um, humidity or temperatures, things may not work or, or we don't have electricity. Or the same thing when you go to the jungle where you can have 45 degrees and a lot of humidity. So that was really helpful for me and for the developers because for the very first time, they started to understand that if they are thinking about a test, they should think also where are they aiming that test to work? Is that a test for a hospital? Is that a test for a primary health center? And if it is a primary health center, I mean, primary health centers in the U.S. are going to be completely different from a primary health center in a low-middle-income country. And even within a low-middle-income country, it's going to be quite different if it is in an urban area versus a rural area or in different regions. So they have to think about issues of stability, humidity, altitude, temperature, water availability, even the quality of the air that sometimes people don't think about, okay? Sometimes, I mean, our air might be too dusty and we don't have air conditioning everywhere. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not possible. Maybe some hospitals and some not. And the issue of electricity, which is critical. I remember we visited one health center in Puno, Puno, is a, a province in Peru in the southern part where the Titicaca Lake is. And actually, they were surprised about, I mean, how the health center looked. I mean, it was almost like a little cabin, right? And, and there was a woman that just delivered the baby, and she was like 15 years old. And, and they saw something that looked like a shelf, right? 
that had a, a the figure of a virgin over it. And they said, like, what is that? And that was an incubator, okay? And they said, like, and why they are not using the incubator if here we are at minus zero degrees? And I said, like, well, I think it's a good shelf at this point because there is no electricity, okay? And that incubator was a donation from somebody with a good heart, but they never thought about the issue of electricity. So like, but there could be incubators with other things. Well, think about what type of incubator, what will be the type of incubator that you will need in this type of situation, right? And so that's one. And let me mention one more, which is critical, okay? We have to think about how the diagnostic will work, but we have to think about what is the waste that we are leaving after we use diagnostics too, okay? And this is an interesting example that we saw too, okay? We were in, in the middle of the jungle after a plane, two boats, and then a little canoe, and we reached this small health center. And so everything was water around, really. And so what they said is like nine months a year, everything is flooded, so they are a little higher in the land. And so... I asked them in purpose, okay, and what did you do with, for example, I mean, you have so many things here. Um, what do you do with your waste? And so what they said is, oh, there is no problem because we make a hole in the garden and we put the bags there. Can you show us your garden? Oh, it's in the back there. But right now it's all flooded. Okay. So, and, and that's what is happening. And then we visited another health center, which has a beautiful kind of like white rug, okay, in the front. And so I started looking at that. And then this person came to me and she was like so excited. I said like, doctor, we love the rapid syphilis test. They are so wonderful. But since we didn't know what to do with all the plastic, the, the little plastic things, okay, we decided to do some crafts and we create this rug, okay. So they were making little holes with a, a needle that was hot and they put put them all together okay I was really scared because so like did you put them on on I mean because they didn't do anything for disinfecting the materials okay but they were trying to do their best because they were having lots of bags with plastic so we need to think also about um, diagnostics that will not keep damaging or creating so much waste in our environments. And I, I, I think that that's another thing that several times we don't think about, but it's quite yeah, important. That's a really good point. You know, thank you, Patty, for those examples. You mentioned several times the importance of stakeholders. And many programs seem from, you know, the perspective of the innovator to be a great idea, a great program to roll out. Yet we know others may have other ideas. Could you give us a few examples of how perspectives or objectives may vary across some of the key stakeholders and, and thoughts that should be considered when developing new products? Well, as, as we said before, it is important to understand the whole ecosystem of diagnostics. Okay, so I think that's the first thing that we, we have to take into account. In that ecosystem, the individuals, the people, it's quite important, and I think we need to hear their voices. I think it's important to hear about the providers, okay, which they are not always the doctors. Sometimes are the nurses or the professional midwives 
or the community workers, and we need to hear what they have to say, okay? Um, we need to hear what the policymakers are thinking about, okay, definitely. And we need to understand also within the countries what is the private sector or the distributors thinking about it. And I think we need also to involve those that are in charge of approving or disapproving certain policies to allow countries to to be able to uh, access to diagnostics. I'm talking about parliamentarians, for example. Believe it or not, they have a very important role. And that's another group that, in the case of syphilis, we involved. It was so interesting to um, teach them about the disease and all the kind of things that could be done. I mean, of course, you will have, from each of them, you may have a different parts of the elephant, and you will need to put them together to understand Okay, what is the whole picture? Uh, the innovators have a lot to say also. I mean, they may have great ideas, but unless they know, again, what, what the ecosystem is and how to make it work, um, we're going to still have incubators like the one that I was telling you that could be used as a shelf or as a table or someplace to sit down or to put flowers, but, but will, will not really be used for whatever is needed. Very good. Thank you. That's that's great insights. Tell us if I'm wrong, but I seem to recall at one point you were using Avon salespeople to communicate information in the, in Peru. The pink cosmetics and, or the pink, yeah, or cosmetics. Yeah. So actually, I learned the the thing is this community, the community ladies, the hope ladies, were my my Avon ladies actually. Okay, so what I did is I kind of learned from the Avon ladies, how they were reaching other women, how they were communicating with one and the other. And actually, I started also training some Avon ladies on the issues of health, okay? Because what we were planning to do, we were planning to use this model of healthy outside and healthy inside, okay? So it's like, it's so beautiful. I mean, if you want to be beautiful, you have to be healthy from the inside. So we have like all these sentences or these sets that the, the women were suggesting, okay? Unfortunately, you know, we started working with Avon Peru here and we started, okay, this whole process. We were going to introduce some anemia tests, rapid anemia tests, and some um, also treatments for anemia, Okay, so women could access this as well as they could access a lipstick or something to, to look much beautiful. But unfortunately, in a year where we were preparing, we started, it, the CEO changed, but he didn't want to continue that. So I decided that even without Avon, I was going to continue. And that's why I started working with the community women, but just talking about directly about cervical cancer. We were talking about a... Um, we were introducing also the concept of HPV vaccination, so teaching the mothers to bring their children, uh, their girls for the vaccination because the Ministry of Health was offering it for free, okay? So I was not selling cosmetics, but I was using that type of concept of women reaching the other women in the market. We were even using, you know, uh, you cannot see it. So this is a bag that you can open, okay, and you can see how the woman looks inside. 
And so they will go to the market because that's the best place to talk with another woman. And when they see a new woman, ah, hello, what are you going to cook today? Do you know about cervical cancer? And then they will open the bag and they will start telling them so where their cervix is, where their ovaries, and how, and they will show the test and how they could do this test themselves and how important it was. And they will start the whole interaction and, uh, and started the distribution of the, of the tests. And actually, the Ministry of Health is using this design of this bag now um, at the community. So people, you can see people holding the bag and then stopping seeing a, a woman and then opening it and then starting talking about how women look in, inside and how self-sampling is something that you can do and about the molecular tests. Now everybody knows about molecular tests, so they like it. What a great story. So, Patty, you've had so many wonderful experiences and trying to innovate in acceptance of new diagnostics. Looking back, if you had the opportunity, is there anything you would do differently? Well, more than doing differently, I want to continue doing it, okay? So <laughs> yes. So one of the things that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to be connected with the world, so understanding what are the new technologies that are coming, up, coming around. Uh, what I'm trying to do is also... Uh, trying to participate in, in all those forums where we are promoting diagnostics as a very important part of universal health care because it's not enough to have services, it's not enough to have doctors, it's not enough to have medications. We need to have the right diagnostics in order to start the treatments, to monitor the treatments, to assure that people are cured or or see what else they need. Okay, so I'm I'm kind of like, completing what I'm doing by trying to work on other parts of the ecosystem, not only the local ones, but the global ones, because I think we, the world still need better diagnostics. I think we need to work on democratizing diagnostics and democratizing information about health also. I think it's not, I'm, I'm not going back thinking about what I should have done differently I have been learning as I go, and I'm adding things to the kind of things that I'm doing. I think it's important to push for diagnostics, community engagement. I think we need to improve the communication about health and breaking all the silos. I mean, we have learned that there is a need of improving health literacy, so I'm working on health literacy too. And I hope that the new generations, this is another thing that I'm kind of working in. For the very first time in Peru, just a couple of years ago, we have the first program on bioengineering in Peru, okay? And in order to have that, two different universities, my university and a university that works in engineering, we're getting together because we also need, we need to promote the development and the, the development, the research, the production and the manufacture of diagnostics in our regions too. So not only depending on high-income countries, I think that's another lesson that we have learned from the pandemic. And maybe that will help us to have those diagnostics that are more appropriate for, for our environments, okay? Um, and I'm trying also to promote some networking between developers from around the world and from our countries. So I would say there is a lot to be done and I'm trying also to, and that's the advantage of working at the university, 
to try to leave my legacy with my students. So others, once I leave, others will continue because I think there is a lot still to be done. Wow. Thank you, Patty. What are the tools that you wish you had but are not yet available? You know, for instance, are there diagnostic tests that you can conceive of that are not available but you wish you had? Oh, well, to, to start with, you know, I, I said that I started working on sexually transmitted infections, right? So yeah. it has been 30 years that we wish to have a some tests that are really affordable, easy to use, and that can help us with most of the, the most common sexually transmitted infections. Okay, We do have the rapid test for syphilis, which is great, okay, but we still several times need to have a, so we have the confirmatory test, but sometimes we're over-diagnosing with that. So there is a double syphilis test that is not perfect, so I think that should be improved. But for example, in the case of chlamydia or gonorrhea, yeah, we have molecular tests, but they're still too expensive. And they are not something that people could test themselves. So I wish we could have more simple tests for for diseases like sexually transmitted infections. We still don't have tests, for example, for a HTLV-2. You may not have heard about this disease, okay? But however, just recently, WHO has recognized this disease as one of the orphan diseases. So it was not even in the list of orphan diseases. and But that causes severe problems in the Latin American region in Asia, basically a lymphomas, a tropical paraparesis. And if, for example, in, in people in the jungle, we, we have prevalences of one or 2%. There is no good diagnostics for HTLV. And there is transmission from mother to children, okay, that could be prevented if the mother is tested in a rapid and simple way. So as, as I mean, those are just two groups. This is HTLV could be transmitted also through sex and through blood. So those are two areas in which I think we need diagnostics. So I really think it will be great to have diagnostics that could allow people to decide, for example, when to go to a health center or not, that could differentiate. I remember a mother saying, because I asked her, what will be your wish diagnostic, right? And what she said is, I would like something that I could put in the forehead of my kid and will have a green, because let's say that the kid is having fevers, like there is nothing, it's a virus and will go away. Or a yellow that says, go to the health center. You can go to the health center and the doctor can see it on a red or a red that will mean go immediately to the health center because this is something that is difficult. So I thought it was really great, right, to have something that would tell people, mothers, when to take their kids immediately when they are having a fever or when they are having a cough, for example. So I wish we could reach that point. That will be democratizing, democratizing diagnostics, but also will help health centers and, and health systems because we will have the people that needs to come. It's more difficult than what the women were saying because would it be checking oxygen level, checking if it is virus or bacteria? I mean, there are so many things that we still need to, to think about, mm -hmm. but um, there is so much that can be done still. So there is a, a lot for developers to think about.
Yeah. And you know, Patty, it's interesting you mentioned HDLV1 too, because back in the late 80s, early 90s at Chiron, we actually developed rapid blood dice tests for HDLV1 and 2. They were on the market, sold. Um, it may be that it's just fallen out of favor and they're, you know, and not a focus of the current developers. Yeah. Well, the other, the other thing is eclampsia, for example. We still don't have good diagnostics for eclampsia. So when, when you are able to control maternal deaths due to bleeding and hemorrhage, then the next problem is eclampsia. And we still don't have, I remember maybe 15 years ago discussing this, somebody was asking me and said, like, why don't we have good tests for eclampsia? Simple tests. By the time we find proteins in the urine of a woman that is pregnant, we already know that it's too late. I mean, so can can we differentiate those that are at risk so we can pay more attention, do other things, do better? I mean, even, even for clinical trials in order to test for treatment, early treatment, etc., they cannot be performed because we don't have good diagnostics. Okay, we are diagnosing women with eclampsia late when the damage is already there. So there are so many things, and I'm sure that depending on what specialty you talk with, I mean, maybe the pediatricians will talk about respiratory diseases, diarrheal diseases, etc. Internists will talk about a different thing. I mean, we still have, and, and as a sexually transmitted person, I talk about STIs and HTLV, right? So there is a lot to do with diagnostics. Uh, we need them, and we hope developers will keep working on it. But I think they need to be focused on, I think, how could they be simpler, okay, and maybe be focused on, on self-testing. I think that's the way to go. Yeah. Pre-eclampsia has been tough science. You know, they, we're still looking at PLGF and now the SFLT1 combinations with that, and they just don't really perform as well as you would like. I know, I know. The good thing is that there there are things that have been moving. So I I know that um, I was reviewing that the the number of publications about um, eclampsia issues has gone up. So that's great, okay? But still, these are things that uh, still need to be sorted out. Believe it or not, we need affordable tests. Some, I, I know that it's difficult, but that's yeah, what a common we need. Sentiment. Patty, this has been an uplifting and very informative conversation. Thank you. I'm sorry if I talk too much, okay? But uh, there's oh, no. so much to talk. No, that's perfect. You know, Ed, do you have any final advice for our audience, for others trying to bring new diagnostics to market? Yeah. I think it will be smart for them to, first of all, ask themselves, what do they want to do with those diagnostics, okay? Because some people are working on diagnostics because they want to make money, so they have to think about the big markets. That's fine. But if they want to make a real difference in the world, uh, so they have to think about where those diagnostics are going to be deployed and understand the ecosystem Okay, so when they develop the the diagnostic, it could be really useful. Okay, and if they want to to put it in the market, it will be also important to consider 
understanding how to implement these diagnostics. And in general, and, and I think it will be good for them also to work with um, academic institutions within the areas that they are interested to introduce their diagnostics, because usually those academic institutions know what is going on around in, in their environment and can be really helpful. Well, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful episode. It has. Yeah, you're a fount of information. Well, thank you so much. And let's hope for new diagnostics that can really make a difference in the whole world. Yes, here, here. You agree more. Well, that was a fascinating discussion with Patty. She has such a remarkable experience in trying to introduce innovative new diagnostics and taking into consideration all the, the appropriate stakeholders and how to influence them to do what needs to be done in order to make this common practice. It's just, uh, there are very few people in the world who probably could have given us that kind of insight. Yes, and her experiences with Project Swan and Project Hope surely are uplifting for others. And thank you for listening to this, our first season of Halteras Presents. We look forward to bringing you season two very soon. And if you have any ideas about what topics you'd like us to cover, please let us know at the link in the show notes for this episode. Thank you. Bye-bye. Holteras Presents is produced by Holteras Associates, a U.S.-based bioscience consultancy that provides strategic and tactical services in the areas of diagnostics, medical devices, and life science research to clients of all sizes. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the episode are solely those of the individuals involved, and Holteras Associates is not responsible for any errors or omissions or for the results obtained from the use of this information. The information provided in this episode is for informational or educational purposes only and is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Holteras Associates would like to say thank you to this episode's guests or guests and thank you for listening to this episode of Holteras Presents. Thank you.